So thanks very much all for coming. Um, so I'm based at the FIMRIB Centre, which is a brain imaging centre up the hill um, at the John Radcliffe Hospital, but I'm also a fellow in the college. And my research group study the phenomenon of brain plasticity, so how the brain changes when you learn new things, have new experiences, or recover from damage such as stroke. And for those of you who haven't yet been up to the laboratory, I'd encourage you to go and have a play on various uh, examples of this that we have up there. So the technology that we're usually using, that we're often using to assess these types of phenomena uh, is brain imaging, in particular magnetic resonance imaging or MRI. So you'll all be familiar with these sorts of uh, machines, which are the machines that you'd have in hospital if you went to have an MRI of your knee, for example. It's exactly the same machine that we'd use to take an MRI of the brain. And we can set up the scanner in different ways to provide us with different types of information which measure different features or characteristics of the brain. Uh, in the simplest terms, we can acquire what's called a structural MRI. That's just a static picture of what the brain physically looks like. And that can give us useful information about the physical features of the brain and can allow us, for example, to measure the size of different structures in the brain. And we often use this to uh, measure the size of different parts of the grey matter. So the grey matter is the areas of, the, of your brain that, that contain the cell bodies. And one example, uh, which some of you may be uh, heard of because it got a lot of media coverage at the time where this type of technology has been used to show how experience changes the structure of our brain was a famous experiment um, done in 2000 on London taxi drivers. So Eleanor Maguire and colleagues at um, UCL in London scanned a whole bunch of cabbies and people who weren't taxi drivers and compared their brain in various different ways and what they found was that a particular part of the brain shown in close up here and shown here on this figure, an area of the brain called the hippocampus was larger in the taxi drivers compared to the non-taxi drivers. And this was a particularly compelling result because we know that this area of the brain is particularly strongly involved in spatial navigation. So the idea is that those many years of navigating around the sort of maze-like streets of London had trained their brains in such a way that it physically expanded uh, this structure in the brain. And those of you who are paying attention might think, well, hang on a minute, there's quite a chicken and egg problem here. So is it the case that it's driving around the streets of London that has grown their brain? Or were, are some people born with a particularly large hippocampus and then they choose to exploit that special uh, ability by becoming a taxi driver? And in this study, they couldn't completely tease those apart because it was a cross-sectional study, just a single time point. But they did show that across their group of taxi drivers, the longer they'd spent driving the taxi, the bigger this area of the hippocampus was. So supporting the idea that it was the experience that had driven this change in brain structure. There are other types of ways in which we can set up our scanner to measure other features of the uh, brain. And a, and a technology that we've used a lot in my lab is something called diffusion MRI. And this is a different type of measure which is particularly uh, useful for studying what we call the white matter, the connecting pathways, the fibres of the brain. So if you were to uh, strip away the cortex or the top of the brain, as has been done in this post-mortem uh, brain sample here, it would reveal this fibrous structure underneath. So there's millions and millions of fibres or cables that connect the different areas of your brain and allow different areas to talk to one another. If you like, this is the wiring, the wiring of the brain that allows for electrical communication between different areas of the brain. And one thing that we were interested in was whether, in the same way as the taxi driver study showed that experience changes the grey matter of your brain, whether experience could also alter the structure or the quality of these connecting pathways of your brain. 
So we did a study some years ago with a, a student, Jan Schultz, who's illustrated there, where we trained people, naive people, so people who couldn't juggle, were trained to juggle over a six-week period. And we scanned their brains using this type of scanning before and after that training period. And what we found was that that new experience, that new learning in healthy adults had indeed changed their brain structure. Not only the structure of the grey matter, but also the structure of those underlying fibre pathways. So here you're seeing a cross section of the brain as if we've cut a slice through the brain and you're looking down from above. And you can see in, in red areas where the grey matter has got larger as a result of that training. And in blue, areas where those white matter pathways have got stronger. So this was really the first demonstration that learning a new skill in adulthood shapes the structure of your brain, not just the grey matter, but also the white matter pathways of the brain. And we now think that uh, what this reflects is probably most likely a strengthening of the insulation. So there's an insulating sheath called myelin around many of your brain fibres and there's growing evidence that electrical activity along a fibre can influence the degree of myelination or the degree of insulation of that fibre. And then finally we can set up our scanner in such a way to record so-called functional MRI or brain activity. So here we put someone in the scanner and we get them to do something and then we look at how their brain is active when they're performing that particular task. So here's just uh, talk you through how that works. Then we put somebody in the scanner and they would alternate between periods of doing nothing in this case and perhaps periods of speaking. And then we look by recording their brain um, signal repetitively over time, we can look for areas in the brain where the signal, which is reflecting um, characteristics of the blood flow, goes up and down in time with the activity that they're performing. And then by plotting those areas in the brain, so the areas that are showing an activity profile in time with the experimental design, we can identify the brain regions involved in that particular function, in this case, speaking. So these are the areas that are active when somebody produces speech. So this technique has been very powerful for allowing people to map different functional regions of the brain. And just as a final example, I can show you how we've used this type of technology to try to understand how the brain changes after stroke and then use that to design new interventions that might help to improve outcomes after stroke. So this um, shows you the results of an fMRI study, but this is a very, very commonly reported finding, which is that there's an imbalance of brain activity after a stroke. So again, these um, illustrations here show you a, a cross-section through the brain as if we've taken a slice horizontally through the brain at the level of the motor cortex, so the bits of the brain that control movement. On the left, you see the pattern of activity that we would usually record if a healthy person were to move their hand, were to move a hand in the scanner in one of those fMRI experiments, where the activity in the brain would be predominantly located in the opposite side of the brain. So as I'm sure many of you know, one side of your brain controls the movements on the opposite side of your body. So when I move my right hand, it's predominantly my left hemisphere that's active. Uh, if somebody has suffered a stroke affecting the movements on the right-hand side of their body, and then people recover to varying degrees after the stroke, some people do recover some degree of, of arm movement. If they're able to move that arm inside the scanner, what we very commonly see is that the activity is now much more bilateral. We see activity on both sides of the brain. Now, to some extent, this is possibly a good thing because it reflects some degree of adaptive compensation. So the intact areas of the brain can alter their activity to compensate for the areas that have been damaged. But it's also associated with poor recovery. So the more we see this type of pattern, the worse the patients are doing. And there is some evidence if we can try and shift people back into this more normal pattern, that might improve uh, their recovery. 
And one way in which we might try and shift the balance of activity between the two hemispheres is by using a type of technology called non-invasive brain stimulation. And again, up in the lab, you can get demonstrations of different types of non-invasive brain stimulation, including uh, the, the technique that you see illustrated um, in this gentleman here. So these are ways in which we can use um, electrical currents or magnetic fields to stimulate the brain uh, from outside of the um, scalp. So they're called transcranial stimulation techniques. And this particular example is called transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS. And with this technology, we, it's very simple, actually. You can, you can build one of these kits. There are instructions, rather worryingly, on how to build these kits on the internet um, very cheaply. But we do buy ours from a reputable supplier. <laughs> um, but you have two large electrodes, two large rubber electrodes, which are placed on the person's head. And then a, a small current is passed between those two electrodes, usually in the order of one to two milliamps. So it's a very small current, a direct current. And it's usually passed between the electrodes for a period of about 10 minutes. And it's been very well characterized what effect that type of stimulation has um, on the excitability of the brain. And it's very well established that if we place uh, the positive um, electrode over the motor cortex of the brain, we know that that type of stimulation has the effect of increasing the excitability of the motor cortex. So this therefore provides us with a way of potentially up-regulating the activity of a particular area of the brain. So if we have a stroke patient performing physiotherapy while they're receiving this type of stimulation, then it can potentially help to reset the balance of um, activity between the two hemispheres. So we recently finished a clinical trial in which we paired this sort of stimulation with, with physiotherapy in a group of chronic stroke patients. And we were able to show, as you can see on the graph on the right here, that the people, um, so the uh, individuals had two weeks of intensive physiotherapy, either with this real brain stimulation or with a placebo control. So in the placebo control, we wire them up to the stimulator in exactly the same way. The patient doesn't know and the experimenter doesn't know whether the um, stimulator is turned on or not. So the placebo effect would be the same. Those people showed some benefit of this two weeks of intensive therapy, but then it trailed off uh, a few months later. Whereas the ones that had received the same training, the same physiotherapy with the brain stimulation had a much longer lasting benefit. So to sum up then, uh, the evidence shows that the adult human brain is capable of remarkable plasticity throughout the lifespan. And we can use brain imaging to understand how the brain changes both its structure and function with experience. And by understanding these changes, we can potentially design new interventions. Thank you.